0: Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, We're in a series called Five on Five. We're soon wrapping it up, but we're looking at five lessons from each of the first five books of the Bible. Now, Deuteronomy 12 may sound familiar. We read it last week uh, in a sermon entitled A Lesson in Pleasing Worship, but this week we're looking at a lesson in Covenantal Worship. Uh, So before we get into God's Word, let me first give you a little background to this sermon. Uh, Three and a half years ago, we decided as a church to pursue covenantal worship, which means that we encouraged families, parents to keep their children with them through the entirety of the service. Uh, Now, we do have an area downstairs where the service is streamed if parents need to take their kids out of the sanctuary. We do have children's Sunday school so that your kids can learn the Bible and learn about God according to age group. But we wanted to create as a church the space, a welcoming environment uh, for families to worship together so that covenantal worship, having children in the service, isn't something foreign and strange, but that it's familiar to us. Uh, that decision was made three and a half years ago, uh, which means when we made it and we explained the transition, uh, probably two thirds of you weren't at this church, uh, but it is a practice that we want to pursue. Uh, we believe it's biblical. And so we want to revisit it one more time as it is in our text today in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now, this 1030 service uh, doesn't have as many children as the 9 a.m. service, but this is uh, the vision of our church. And if you call Cornerstone home or you'd like to know more about this church, this is what we are pursuing and where we are headed. And so we are looking at a lesson in covenantal worship. Friends, if you are able, I invite you to stand. Standing is an act of worship. We read God's word and we receive God's word in reverence for God and his word. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 14. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Dear friends, join me in prayer once more. God, give to us listening ears and give to us uh, a willingness to sit uh, and to, with our thoughts and our attention, with our affections, look to you and give you the worship that you deserve. Even in the receiving of your word, may it be for your glory, for even this is an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just read Deuteronomy 12, and I want to give us a little bit of background as we get into the word today. Uh, In the book of Deuteronomy, Israel is on the precipice of entering into the promised land. They're going to make Canaan their permanent residence. And so what's happening in this chapter is before Israel crosses over, God gives final instructions on how Israel is called to worship when they cross over. The commands of Deuteronomy 12 are for Israel. Now, here's a question. Uh, When we read the Old Testament and we seek to apply it, we want it to be relevant to our lives. All of God's word is relevant to our lives. Is there a way to do it responsibly and irresponsibly? And the answer is yes. Yes. If you actually read God's word, particularly the Old Testament, and you mishandle it, you interpret it and apply it in a wrong way, then you end up with all kinds of consequences. Uh, Some of them, as simple as if we understand the Old Testament wrong as Christians, you can't eat bacon anymore. You can't eat lobster. We can't enjoy oysters. Why? Because under the Old Covenant, Israel was given specific laws that applied only to them. But now, as Christians in the New Covenant, Christians who believe Jesus is coming and in coming, he has fulfilled promises and patterns and prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, not everything applies to us. The question, though, is what in the Bible applies to us now as Christians? What doesn't? Specifically in Deuteronomy, what's written here that ended because Christ came? And what's in here that endures even though Christ came? That's what we're looking at today and what we need to consider in order to understand how we're supposed to worship God. When we look at our scripture today, we realize that in this passage, there are at least two things that Jesus fulfilled. And so we as Christians are no longer bound to them. We have freedom from them. And those are place and payment. So let me just describe this and and explain it real quickly. Uh, The place uh, we read in verse 5 where God says this. Moses says, Uh, to Israel, uh, but you shall seek the place that the Lord, your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. What's going on here is God was calling Israel. Hey, when you cross over into the promised land, I'm going to choose a specific place. And there is where you should worship. And when we find out that that's the city of Jerusalem, that there's a specific temple there, King Solomon is going to come and build it. And so God is choosing a specific place for Israel to worship. But when Jesus comes, he fulfills it. Because Jesus comes and he says, listen, I'm the final temple. I'm God's presence come to be with man. And more than that, more gloriously, I've given you my Holy Spirit. And he indwells in you. You're now the temple where two or more are gathered. There the presence of God is. It's a beautiful promise that Jesus fulfills saying that we no longer have to worship in a specific place. But where believers are gathered, that's where worship happens. This is why in John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the woman of Samaria, He explains to her that it's neither on this mountain nor in this city that we're called to worship, but God is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. So because of Christ, the specific place of worship, that is no longer the statute and rules that apply to us. Where the saints gather, that's where worship happens. The second thing Jesus fulfills in Deuteronomy 12 is the payment. Because of Israel's multitude of sins, Worship involved a payment. They needed to be washed. They needed to be forgiven. They needed to be covered as they came before God. And so we read in verse 11, this command, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. And the point here, God was making a provision. He was saying, I'm going to set up the sacrificial system. I'm going to establish the priesthood because on your own coming before God, you're so full of sin, you would be consumed and you could have uh, no way of standing before him. And so when Jesus comes from the very words of John the Baptist in John one, he says about Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that means when you come, you don't have to bring sacrifices. You don't have to bring offerings. You don't have to bring a payment for your sins because of Jesus. So there we have it. There's your quick theology lesson. In Deuteronomy 12, two things are fulfilled by Christ, the place and the payment. But does that mean nothing in Deuteronomy 12 now applies to us as Christians? After all, it's in the Old Testament. Aren't we focused on the new? Well, what you begin to see and realize is that there are still two things in Deuteronomy 12 that Christians are called to follow. And that's a principle and a pattern. And so what we have fulfilled is a place and a payment. What we still have is a principle and a pattern. The first is the principle. God's priorities trump our preferences. If you look in verse 8, Moses warns Israel with these warnings. He says, uh, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Moses is warning Israel, before we cross over into the promised land, you need to know that what you were doing, how you were worshiping, how you were living in the wilderness and in the desert, that's not going to cut it in the promised land. Those practices, that behavior won't fly over in Canaan. Now It's simple. Just think about it like parenting. When you're traveling with your kids and you're out of the house uh, and you're on a plane or in a car or in a hotel, uh, You do whatever you can to control and contain your kids. You do whatever you can uh, to really just keep your own sanity. And so all the rules that you have at home, you bend them, don't you? You bend the rules, you suspend them. Because when you're out of the house, all the normal habits and the routines, all the rules you've established, they don't exist. When you're out and about, you just give your kids snacks in order to keep them occupied. You just throw a screen much longer than what you decided would be their limit in order to keep them subdued. You let them stay up later because in the midst of all of the transition, you know that nap time can't be expected. So kids, after a week of vacation, they begin these practices. And you know, as a parent, when you start going home, you have a talk with them. You say, hey, listen, when we get back home, we're back to the rules. When we get back home, we're back to doing life the way we're supposed to. What we did is no longer what we're going to do. Think about it. Israel has been on a long road trip, 40 years. They've been out in the wilderness and now they're about to go home. And as they get ready to go home, Moses says, how you used to worship, that's no longer going to cut it. God is going to enforce new rules, new routines, new rhythms for you. And he says at the end of this verse here, what has to stop is everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Does this sound familiar to you? If it does, it's because you know it comes from a repeated refrain in the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with this summary statement of the life of Israel. It's very discouraging where Judges 21 says, In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when the book of Judges ends that way, basically what's happening is, The author is summarizing Israel's appalling behavior because when they entered the land, they redefined everything according to what they wanted. Their ethics, their morality, their standards of behavior, all of that was rewritten and Israel decided for themselves what was right in their own eyes. They said, this is good and this is bad and this is right and this is wrong. And Moses writes this warning saying don't do what is right in your own eyes because he knows that's a tendency of the human heart, that we create our own rules, that we become the ultimate determiner and decider of what we like and what we want. So Moses says, hey, listen, when you go into the promised land, it's not gonna be up to you. You don't get to tell God what is good worship, bad worship, pleasing worship or unpleasing worship, acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. Only God gets to decide. So this becomes an enduring principle That God's ways, his priorities, trump our preferences. What that means for worship is you have preferences. There are things you like about worship, things you want in worship, things that you feel blessed by in worship, things that move you in worship. And some of those things may be good and biblical and true and edifying, but ultimately, at the end of the day, your preferences for worship must bow down to God's priorities in worship. The things that you may find uncomfortable or inconvenient or impractical, those things need to be laid down before God in order to worship his way. Now for Israel, here's what this meant. They were going to cross over into the promised land of Canaan, and then God was going to say, before we had a movable tent, we kind of set it up anywhere, all of you could come and worship. But when we go into the permanent land, worship is going to be in one location. So we read in verses 10 and 11, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. So imagine this. Israel has been, uh, their camp is centered around the tabernacle where God's presence is. But when they cross over into the promised land, they're all going to be given uh, different plots, different allotments of territory. So some are going to go all the way up north, some are going to go all the way south, and all the 12 tribes are going to spread out. And then God says, but when we worship, we're gonna worship in the city of Jerusalem in the temple. Now, if you live within eyesight of Jerusalem, you're saying, well, no, that's great. I can wake up in the morning, I can head over. But if you live up north in the tribe of Naphtali, you're like, I have to travel hundreds of, of miles in order to go worship. You can imagine that it was a little inconvenient. You can imagine that they were complaining a little bit. I prefer, can we have a satellite temple? Can, can we zoom into Jerusalem worship? This is a little too far. But Israel knew that it wasn't according to what they wanted and what they decided, but what God had said. You know, every every summer, um, our denomination, we are in the Presbyterian Church in America, we have an annual gathering of pastors and ruling elders. It's called General Assembly. Every year we have it. It's always in the summer and it's always in the South. And that's because the PCA is a historically Southern denomination. And so as a result, every summer, pastors from all around the country, we have to uh, gather in the epicenter of heat and humidity, the South. None of us wants to go there. Especially if you're from the West Coast where you have perfect weather or you're from, you know, the Northeast where everybody is fast and angry and you know, ill-tempered. You don't want to go down to the South where it's hot and humid and people are just so friendly, it's disgusting. You don't want to travel that far. It takes a whole day to get there. You, pay, you have to pay for a week of hotel. You're away from family. You're away from church. You have to rent a car. You have to Uber everywhere. It's a great hassle. But regardless of how any of us feel, year after year, we make our long trek, all of the pastors to Mordor, <laughs> to, the, to whatever southern city they've chosen and decided this is where we're going to meet. Why? Because it's our duty. It's our responsibility. And so we go. Much in the same way, Jerusalem, oh my goodness, for the northerners, it's so inconvenient. The travel was hard, the journey long, the cost significant, the sacrifices many. But no matter how the various tribes felt about it, God said, this is where we're worshiping. And so everybody said, I have my preferences, but God, your priority comes first. And so you follow what God says. To Jerusalem they go. I bring this up because we have preferences to worship. Things we like, things we don't like. Things that help us worship God, things that we find distracting. But at the end of the day, what are God's priorities? Because we've gathered to worship to honor and to please the Lord, not ourselves. It's because we gather as worshipers, we don't gather as customers and consumers, that what is ultimately convenient and comfortable to us is not the ultimate determining factor. It's what God desires. That's the principle. God's priorities trump our preferences. And if you believe that, it leads then to a pattern and a practice. The practice is this, covenantal worship. What is covenantal worship? Very simply put, covenantal worship is the invitation and the inclusion of covenant children into the community of worship. It's the invitation, hey, you are welcome there, and the inclusion, we're going to create the space for you here, for covenant children into the community of worship. When we say we're pursuing covenantal worship, it means we're not doing two things. One, we're not having the kids join us in singing songs, but once the sermon starts, we exile them into their own worship. It is not creating a separate children's church where from the very beginning, you drop off your kids and then you come here and you do your worship, they do their worship, then you meet up afterwards and you go home for their nap. That's not what covenantal worship is. Covenantal worship is about welcoming and encouraging. All the members of God's covenant community, from young to old, from infancy to adulthood, to worship together. It's a practice that is commanded twice in Deuteronomy 12, first in verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice. Who shall rejoice? You and your households. And all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And I feel like Moses knew people would say, well, define household for me. So he says in verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants. Simply put, the Bible doesn't recognize the modern distinction we make between adult worship and children's worship. It simply doesn't exist. The only worship is covenantal worship for the covenant people. Now it's, Easy and it's tempting to dismiss this and say, well, isn't this part of the Old Testament? Isn't this under the Old Covenant? We're in the New Covenant. We're free. We can do things however we want. But friends, when Jesus fulfilled Deuteronomy 12, what did he fulfill? Two things. First, he fulfilled the place of centralized worship. We don't have to worship in Jerusalem anymore, praise God. And he fulfilled the payment of costly worship. You don't have to bring a bull, a ram, or a goat before you come to church. But the one thing Jesus did not fulfill was the practice of covenantal worship. What about the person, life, work of Jesus fulfilled the need for us to worship together as God's covenant family? This is a hard teaching. This is a hard practice that the Bible commands, but it is nonetheless commanded. Now, unless you're tempted to stop listening and say, well, this is a message for young parents with young kids. No, this is a message for everybody, empty nesters, parents of older kids, those who are married with no children, those who are not married, those who are in youth group, children, yourselves. This is a message for everybody because covenantal worship requires the buy-in of the whole covenant community. At the end of the day, we're not simply asking that children are put up with we're asking that children are welcomed and embraced, loved, and accepted. At the end of the day, overwhelmed, struggling parents shouldn't be judged and condemned simply because they want to worship with their kids, but they should be encouraged and supported and helped and received by the community. Because when we engage in covenantal worship, all of us, each one of us are anticipating and longing for this one day where the cries of babies become the shouts of praise and the fussing of infants become confessions and professions of faith. That's what we're hoping for. And that's why we let the covenant babies enjoy their covenant privileges, privileges and rights they have through their baptism. This is a bold vision. It's an unpopular one. The road ahead is long. The journey to get there is tough. It asks and demands a lot from the members. It puts a heavy burden on parents. As a young church that wants to grow covenantal worship, I know turns visitors and guests away. It slows down our growth. It makes us less attractive to those who want the in children's programs with the hottest VBS out there. It crowds our sanctuaries. It complicates matters of practice. But if it's pleasing to the Lord, then it's worth it. So how do we do this as a church? I just want to suggest two things for us. The first is this model love for God and love for worship. Model it. So many times we are focused because of our education system on what is taught that we forget the power of what is caught. What I mean is that parents often want a separate children's service because they want to make sure their kids are learning about God. But the primary concern of Sunday worship is not to learn about God. It's to love God. And so there's nothing more powerfully caught than children worshiping with their parents together. Now, this is first and foremost Of responsibility for the parents. If you want your kids to love God, you can't just tell them, love God. You must show them how. You must love God and worship God. And this doesn't happen as you entrust in the most important hour of the week, the time of meeting God with his people to another teacher and say, well, can you help them love God? It happens as your children who have no idea what's happening and whining and fussing are bored out of their mind, looks at mom and dad and says, why are they raising their hands in praise? Why are they giving their attention to the word of God? Why do they look relieved after they cast down anxieties in prayer? Why do they seem broken as they confess sins? If kids never see their parents loving and worshiping God, why in the world would they ever believe that they need to love and worship God? So how do you help your children catch this? You bring them alongside and you instruct. You model and you teach, you show and tell. Today, this Sunday, it's a glorious day because it's the Lord's day. But there is a second reason. At 1 p.m. today, football starts. I know some fans here, you know, you love your Sports, you love your football. You desperately want your kids to love football. But you don't want them just to love football. You want them to love your team. You want them to bleed green. How do you train your children to love what you love? You watch the game together. When they're young, you sit them next to you on your lap, and you enjoy the game. Do they understand at five years old what is happening? No, they don't. Here's what they know. Mom and dad really like this. They see your expressions, your enthusiasm, your emotions, and in seeing and witnessing, they're being shaped. Their opinions are being formed. They have no idea what the sports commentators are talking about. They don't know what a neutral zone infraction is. I don't. (laughs) But they watch, and they grow, and they learn. And you trust that over time with repetition and diligence and explanation and instruction, they too will begin to understand what you understand and they'll love what you love. And then before you know it, they're perceiving things that you're perceiving perceiving, and they're participating in things that you're participating in. Why does it happen? It happens because you involve them. If this is true of something like a football, it's certainly so much more true in worship. As parents, you bring your children alongside of you, patiently explaining, lovingly instructing, intentionally modeling how to love God and how to love worship of his name. The children are built up in faith. And so Deuteronomy is commanding you and your household, come rejoice, it's a household affair, but it's given to the community because although the responsibility of modeling love for God and for worship is the parent's responsibility, For the covenant community, it is an opportunity and a privilege. It's one thing for kids to watch the Eagles play and hear their parents loudly cheering and happy on the television screen at home. It's another thing for you to take them down to the link to where the Eagles actually play so that they are surrounded by like-minded fans, loudly cheering, enjoying the game, sharing high-fives, and the child to understand this is what worship looks like. Because often... We know that football is pseudo-worship. How much more so than when the parents bring children into Sunday service, and you as participants and worshipers are singing and raising your hands and enjoying worship and taking it seriously. Do the children around you look at you? They're not your kids. They look at you, and they look at her, they look at him, and they know something is happening here. If you have children, you have a responsibility in covenantal worship. If you don't have children, you have a privilege in covenantal worship. Model love for God and love for worship. Second, be concerned with what pleases God in worship. What pleases God. That's the goal. Have you ever had an experience where you went to the movie, something you were looking forward to a lot? Looking forward to it so much, you watch the trailer a million times, or maybe you're the type of person who, because you look forward to it so much, you've refused to watch any trailer. And you go in and you are excited, and right as the movie starts, you have your soda and your popcorn and your nachos and your you know, Reese's Pieces. Oh, that's my candy of choice. And up front, you hear whining and crying and talking and hushing and parents scolding. And what do you feel in that moment? You feel annoyed and frustrated and impatient. Why? Because they're ruining my experience. I've come to enjoy this and they are an obstacle to me getting what I've come for. Often, if you come to worship with the same expectations to receive something, to get something, to experience something, then you will consider children who are rowdy and talking and crying and fussing, you will consider them to be distractions because they will be obstacles in your way from you having a blessed worship experience. But ask yourself, why did I come to church today? What is the main purpose of my gathering? that I come to give something to God or to get something from God? Ultimately, your answer and your attitude is revealed in your heart's response to the little ones tossing and turning. Are you bothered? Are you agitated? Are you irritated? Are you annoyed? It's hard to say, but maybe if you feel this way, it's revealing that your views on worship are a lot more selfish than you'd like to admit. Because if your main concern gathered here today is, Lord, what pleases you? Then you might be pleasantly surprised to find that what you consider a distraction, the Lord considers a delight. Because what is the heart of our God? We see a glimpse of it in Luke 18. Now they were bringing even infants to him, this is Jesus, that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to Him, saying, "Let the children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it." And the disciples saw these infants as inconvenient interruptions into Jesus's ministry, a ministry that they believed should surely be focused on the adults. And that's why they thought, how dare these parents bring kids to Jesus? Don't they know how many germs kids have? Don't they know how unnaturally sticky their fingers can get? Don't they know that he is, that they are a distraction? And so the disciples, they rebuke Jesus, but they greatly miscalculate the situation because they've missed the heart of God. Jesus does not join them in condemning the parents, but he commends the presence of these children. He says, I want them here because they have a place in my kingdom. And Cornerstone, do you realize that Jesus invites the ones that you might consider inconvenient interruptions? That he delights in the ones that we're tempted to see as distractions and disturbances? Because nowhere in the New Testament... Is there a case when Jesus tells the disciples to run children's ministry so he can preach the Sermon on the Mount to the adults? Jesus wants the children with him and near him in the same way he wants you with him and near him. And if he didn't let your sin keep you away, he won't let their size and their age keep them away. It's hard to admit The selfishness in our hearts, the sin in our hearts wants worship to be about us and for us to receive and for us to be blessed. And we want to remove the obstacles that get in the way. But when we stop to remember what the gospel says, the gospel revealing a God who inconvenienced himself by embracing and welcoming and inviting those whom he should have kept away, namely you and me, and the multitude of the mess of our sins. And so if Jesus has flung wide the gates of his kingdom for people like you and me to enter, how dare we then shut it behind us to prevent the covenant children from entering as well? Rather, we gather together, all of us in the covenant community, in one worship to behold the one Savior who came to save children and adults. There is no child so young that they haven't committed enough sin that they don't need the gospel. There's no such thing. There's no parent so old that they've now learned how to perfect righteousness and that they don't need the gospel. We all need it. Praise God that He has given Himself and offered Himself His forgiveness and His grace to all who turn to Him. Verse 7 says, You shall rejoice, you in your households. And the beauty of that only makes sense when you hear Paul's words to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved too, you and your household. The promise of God coming to the people of God, young and old. See, friends, this is the vision that we're pursuing. This is the hope we're praying for. This is the promise we're holding on to. It will require some bearing in the way we worship. It will require radical reorientation in what we're expecting when we gather in this place. But what we we will eventually find and discover is that covenantal worship is beautiful because God has not offered a different gospel for different ages and different stages. But the same Savior, the same Christ has come to save young and old. We have a wonderful covenantal opportunity and privilege as the family of God to model worship to model love for God to our young ones. So let's encourage our parents around us. Don't rub neck when the little ones are squirming. Why aren't they doing something? Lend a helping hand. Encourage them, pray for them, bless them. And in that way, we as a covenant community will be built up, not as consumers and customers, but as worshipers who've come to worship our God. Let's pray.